Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is Week 1, the Book of Amos, Introduction and Chapter 1. Well, as is our custom in Torah Class, I'm going to get us started uh, on our study of the prophetic Book of Amos with an introduction to this most interesting and enlightening book of Scripture. Now after the introduction, we'll begin chapter 1. Now the setting for Amos is this. Amos was a Judean man who lived in the kingdom of Judah, but he traveled from there to the kingdom of Ephraim Israel to make known the prophecy that God gave to him. Now this occurred during the time that King Jeroboam II was in power in Ephraim, Israel, while simultaneously King Uzziah was in power in Judah. Now from a calendar perspective, this would have been sometime in the mid-8th century BC, likely between the dates of 786 and 746 BC. So at the latest, rather, Amos's prophecies were completed at least two decades before Assyria rose up and conquered Ephraim, Israel, sending its people into exile. The prophet Hosea was a contemporary of Amos, and very likely they were at the least aware of one another. Um, probably they were personally acquainted, although there's nothing recorded to positively confirm that likelihood. Now Isaiah and Jonah. Isaiah and Jonah also prophesied within this time frame. So we see that prophecy was flourishing, it was being poured out at a very heightened pace, meaning that much was about to happen to Israel that Jehovah wanted His people to know it was imminent, why it was occurring, why they should repent for their sins, that was the cause for the coming events, and to give them time to prepare in practical ways for their judgment of war and exile. Now, this punishment was God-directed. It would not be delayed, it would not be called off, no matter how sorry or repentant the people of Ephraim Israel might become in response to hearing of this horrific judgment of their unfaithfulness before God. Now, King Jeroboam would be the final king of a particular dynasty of kings that had begun with Jehu in the mid-9th century BC. Now, perhaps of largest significance for Amos' prophetic body of work was that Ephraim Israel had become a thriving, wealthy kingdom. At the same time, more and more farmers sold their land to larger landowners and moved into the cities to find work. Greedy merchants bought up the food supply from these large farmers and sold them to the city dwellers at exorbitant prices, reaping nearly unconscionable profits for themselves while driving poor city dwellers just further into poverty. This disparity between rich and poor only heightened the tendency of all societies to elevate the status of the rich and to diminish the status of the poor such that the rich oppressed the poor. Thus a primary focus for Amos was the issue of social justice, social justice, and God's great displeasure at a few Israelites becoming wealthy on the backs of the helpless poor. Now the result of this amazing wealth 
was a new class of people in Ephraim, Israel, that greatly resembles what we see in the world today. A leisure class of elites. Personal pleasures, decadence, indifference to the plight of the poor that led to widespread immorality, especially of a sexual nature. Yet at the same time, the religion of the Ephraim Israelites was quite popular. The rich especially went to great extremes in their religious practices, and the poor did as much as they could, sometimes even if it meant deprivation for their families. Now truly, it was the earliest example of a prosperity doctrine at work, and it demonstrates all the disastrous consequences it brings with it because it's antithetical to God's character and to His instructions to us. I mean, the core issue was that the religion that was currently being practiced by Ephraim Israel had little resemblance to the biblical faith as laid out in the Torah as it was given to Moses. It had degenerated into a perverted hybrid of Torah law, pagan rituals involving pagan god systems, with man-made doctrines and traditions all mixed in. The people of Ephraim Israel, however, were blind to it. They dismissed God's oracles sent to them through His prophets, oracles that condemned their idolatry and their unfaithfulness to Him, all the while insisting, well, they were in full allegiance to the God of Israel and to His commandments. Now, please notice my continuing reference to Ephraim Israel. Only rarely will we see Bible commentators and Bible teachers refer to the northern kingdom of the ancient Israelites in this way. It is perhaps helpful to remember that at this time in history, Israel had through civil war become split into two independent and separately governed kingdoms. The sad reality is that only for a period of about 80 years, under the reigns of Kings David and Solomon, was Israel a united nation under a single king. Eighty years. Upon Solomon's death, the United Kingdom descended into chaos and then outright armed conflict as various power-hungry people vied for the throne. Shortly after the midpoint of the 10th century BC, the result was a splitting of Israel into two kingdoms, each ruled by its own king, the Kingdom of Judah to the south, the Kingdom of Israel to the north. However, in reality, the northern kingdom was mostly known to the people as the kingdom of Ephraim, and we find it stated as much in the Bible, even though some versions obscure this by substituting the word Israel, when in fact the Hebrew manuscripts say Ephraim. Now the reason for this name was that the tribe of Ephraim had become the largest, the most powerful of the northern ten Israelite tribes, and so, as was common in that era, the territory and the kingdom was named for them. Now, I have added the word Israel to the kingdom's name in order to help you to better understand this dynamic and who it is exactly that the Bible and I are talking about. Thus, I will alternate calling the northern kingdom Israel or Ephraim or Ephraim Israel to address the somewhat confusing situation. Now, another factor that plays an important role in our study of Amos is this. Even though it would be eventually the nation of Assyria that would attack, conquer, exile, the residents of the northern kingdom of Ephraim Israel during most of the time that Amos prophesied, 
Assyria was a rather tame regional power, and so they were of no real threat to Israel. Tiglath-Pileser III was king of Assyria during that area, and although like most Middle Eastern potentates, he from time to time attempted territorial expansion to add to his hoped-for empire, not until the last part of the 8th century BC did he finally turn his ambitions to the west and to the nations that resided there with the kingdom of Ephraim Israel being among them. Now this reality had much to do with Ephraim Israel's increasing wealth because they were in a several decades period of relative peace with their neighbors. So they didn't have to spend human capital and treasury money to fight expensive wars, except when they sought to acquire more territory for itself, which they did. But this also leads us to the fact that Amos was silent about Assyria, although he says that a foreign nation will decimate and exile Israel. He never says which nation it will be. Now Amos, we are told in the first verse of this of his book, was a sheep breeder from Tekoa, a small town just a few miles south of Jerusalem in the kingdom of Judah. Now although some Bible versions will call him a shepherd, Amos was much more than someone who merely tended sheep in the fields. In Hebrew, the word is noked, noked, and it denotes a, a, a knowledgeable person who's in charge of sheep breeding, and therefore he was probably pretty well off. Now, we're told in Amos chapter 7 that he also had to do with cultivating sycamore trees. However, this particular type of tree that at that time was called sycamore was actually a variety of fig tree. We know little else about him. We don't know his age. We don't know how long he might have lived. We don't know whether he had a family or when he had come to be a prophet. We only know that he did not go to any kind of prophet academy, nor was he trained by another prophet, and in fact claims only that God called him to this office. And you know, something we ought to draw from this is that God's calling upon our lives for the purpose of ministry far surpasses any amount of prior experience, academic training, or honors bestowed upon us by human institutions. Hopefully this is an encouragement for all of you. A recurring question asked of me is what school someone needs to attend, or what kind of degree is needed to become a pastor or a Bible teacher. And while by no means is it my intent to demean formal training in these areas, at the same time we will find that some of the greatest figures in Bible history had no training in the ministry vocation God assigned to them. Rather, whatever ability and understanding they needed was merely gifted to them by the Father in the form of what we might call spiritual gifts. Among such great Bible stalwarts as these, we find the original twelve disciples of Christ, even Yeshua Himself, who had no formal religious training. Now that the other end of the spectrum, we find Paul, who was highly trained at the best rabbinical academy in the Holy Land, but in reality he was the exception, not the rule. So, at God's calling, if Amos left his lucrative career as a sheep breeder and an expert in fig growing, what did he do to make a living? In his era, prophets were paid either by the local government or by donations from those he prophesied to. Now, this is made clear by the words of Amos 7.12 where we read, Amatia also said to Amos, Go away, seer, go back to the land of Judah. 
earn your living there, prophesy there. Since Amos's prophetic calling was mostly about taking a message of doom to Ephraim Israel in consequence of their terrible failings before God, then it isn't surprising that he is similar to Hosea in that in his perspective on Israel's sins, it closely followed the covenant of Moses. That is, whereby the specific crimes against God that Amos speaks of by means of divine oracle are those listed in the law of Moses, so are the punishments for those crimes also listed. This is not a trivial issue. For Israel, ever since the Torah was given to them on Mount Sinai, their civil law and morality code was to be only the law of Moses. Thus, something was defined as a sin, a, a crime against their fellow man or against God, only when it violated a specific commandment, a law found in that covenant with Israel that was made only a few weeks after their exodus from Egypt. Now further, each crime, each sin, as specified and described by the Law of Moses, also was accompanied by a specific consequence for disobedience, usually called a curse. This is important enough that I'm going to expound on this, import, this important principle for just a moment. After Mount Sinai, upon which Moses received the Torah from God, the law that was given there became Israel's rock-solid moral code, their constitution, if you would. Right and wrong, good and evil, this was defined for them. Justice was defined for them. Righteousness, mercy, compassion, love, so much more. This was also defined for them according to the lawgiver's, God's viewpoint and his standard. In other words, just as the various civil law codes, well, of at least the developed Western nations today, are meant to be objective listings of rights and wrongs, crimes and punishments, so is the law of Moses meant as God's one and only objective written code of morality, of right and wrong for His elect. What does it mean for something to be objective? Well, objective means that a rule or a judgment or an outcome is not affected by emotions and opinions, nor does that rule, judgment, or outcome change and vacillate situation by situation or case by case or according to the social status of the persons involved. On the other hand, the term subjective has the polar opposite meaning. To be subjective means that emotions and opinions are at the core of the rules and judgments and outcomes. That is, to be subjective indeed means rules, judgments, and outcomes do change and vacillate and effectively follow little to no fixed or discernible pattern. And that the persons who make the defi uh, these, these definitions and decisions have the latitude to do so. Thus, a so called subjective moral law code is by definition an oxymoron and a fantasy. I mean, how can a code also be objective when rules, judgments, and outcomes can theoretically change infinitely? never be applied in the same way twice. We see nowhere in the Bible, Old or New Testaments, that the Law of Moses, God's moral code for humanity, is legitimately applied subjectively. Rather, it is applied uniformly, even-handed, objectively.
And God, in fact, warns against doing otherwise. In Amos, as in Hosea, we witness God being fully faithful to His own morality code as He judges Israel for their failure to follow it. Now, what Ephraim Israel had wittingly done was to effectively transform the law of Moses and turn it from objective to subjective by adding and changing rules and laws as each religious leader came and went, by mixing ever-changing human desires and trends with evolving religious customs and traditions, and then attempting to sort of stitch the Law of Moses and these customs and traditions together to form a new fabric, a fabric with which to clothe their religious cult in phony, man-made religiosity that they preferred and enjoyed. Israel had essentially removed the needle from their moral compasses. Well, about a thousand years later, beginning in the 4th century AD, the newly formed Gentile Christianity centered in Rome did the same. At the infamous and well-documented councils of Nicaea and Laodicea, the only objective and divinely given code of morality offered in the Holy Scriptures, that's the Law of Moses, was officially banned. It was abolished by church leadership. In its place, new man-made doctrines and customs, at that time they were called canons, were installed. And as a means to rationalize this action, over the centuries some branches of Christianity adopted the theological philosophy that the Holy Spirit had replaced the law. Other branches decided that love and or grace had replaced the law, or both. Now it was left up to local society, or to the church, or to the individual believer to define love, justice, morality. Even more, if the Holy Spirit wants you to know what a sin is, what morals He wants you to display, He'll tell you individually. And if He doesn't, well then for you, a behavior is not sin, even though that same action might be sin for somebody else, that person sitting right next to you. Sin became not only entirely subjective and evolutionary, but also customized person by person by person. Morality was no longer measured against a universal standard. Now I repeat, this is exactly the same as Ephraim Israel's crime against God, a crime summarized as idolatry. Pretty strong language, a general indictment of some of the core doctrines of modern Christianity? Yes. See, it's important for every serious seeker of Scripture to realize that modern Christianity in general refuses to face our error and denounce these many centuries of anti-scriptural religious customs and traditions that has been foisted upon us by deceived church authorities, and instead to put the Law of Moses back into its rightful place as our universal, divine, objective code of morality. This is precisely what Israel had done, and Amos went to great lengths to explain this to them, even though it largely fell on deaf ears, and he would even be told by Israel's leaders to stop prophesying, because especially the religious leaders, well, they didn't like it. Now, I took you on this short detour, because Old Testament prophecy remains entirely relevant and applicable to modern-day believers, Gentile and Jew, and to the way we are to properly practice our faith and offer our worship just as it was for ancient Israel. When we pretend that it no longer applies, instead it is morphed 
into something else due to an erroneous doctrine that the advent of Jesus erased all that God had established before the cross, we set ourselves on the road to deception and ruin, even if it's unintentional. It would take a few years from the time of Amos's warnings for the heavenly shoe to finally fall. But fall it did. And the catastrophic consequences have plagued Israel for millennia, not merely centuries. Amos, therefore, was not actually a man of theological innovation. Rather, he was a man of theological reform. What Amos said was not new, it was not reworked. It was a reiteration of already established ancient truths as given in God's Torah. Now, the biblical scholar Klaus Koch made an astute observation in his work on the biblical prophets. It is that God's warning to Ephraim Israel through Amos and other prophets highlights the unmistakable relationship between Jehovah's revealed code of morality and world history, especially as it concerned Israel. He called the biblical prophets moral futurists, and he pointed out the biblical principle that moral behavior has a direct connection to, it has a direct effect upon what happens in any given society. When those of us in our modern world, and I point the finger directly at America and especially the Western church and synagogue, when we observe the chaos and the confusion, the fears, the anxieties that have a death grip upon us as a collection of societies, it's impossible to ignore as the root cause of this devastating effect the feverish attempt by many in both the secular and the religious spheres to completely rewrite and redefine morality to better agree with the preferences of our societies. God cannot be compartmentalized. He cannot be set apart from our everyday lives and decisions as a recent American president openly suggested we do. We can't believe and behave immorally and according to our own standards six days and 23 hours per week, but then for one hour on a weekend, Worship Him in a church or a synagogue as an antidote or an immunization against the biblically ordained consequences for our unfaithfulness and disobedience to His moral code. God's defined morality is not only a code for righteousness, it's the foundation upon which, which He created everything. Our universe only operates properly as it was designed, when God's human creatures obey His rules. Now, another strong theme that we'll encounter in Amos' book is this. Jehovah is so sovereign over all the earth, not only over the land of Israel. Jehovah is the God of all nations, and the first few chapters of his book Amos' book demonstrate this at length, and just as he is the God of all the heavenly hosts in the spiritual realm, he is also God over all of his creation and creatures in the physical realm, not just some. This is a notion that modern believers, of course, have no trouble understanding and accepting since it's a fundamental principle of our faith. So it's hard to communicate to you what a novel thought this was for the 8th century BC. You see, pagans and Israelites alike shared the belief that there were many gods for many purposes. Even the heathens didn't deny the existence of Jehovah, the God of Israel. Ancient Israel would claim monotheism. But the mindset was that this meant Jehovah was God only 
over Israel, nowhere else, and over no other people. And that he was sovereign over no other geography than Israel, because each nation or people group had their own separate God, their own set of gods of nature. Now the term monotheism to a Christian means there's only one God in existence. Ancient Israel claimed monotheism, which from their perspective meant Jehovah was Israel's only God, yet in practice even that was a sham. Because Israel had much earlier adopted some of their neighbors' gods into their worship practices, and in the so doing, relegated Jehovah into the job as their own perfunctory national god that each nation was thought to have. Now, because Israel had become so intertwined with the affairs of the, the, the gods and God's systems of their neighbors, they forgot. Jehovah was not a typical God, and they more envisioned Him as they did the various Baals. The gods of the, of the uh, regions, various God systems demanded sacrifice, mostly for the sake of being served to satisfy their own narcissism. Those gods could care less about morality or ethical behavior of their worshipers. But the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob brooked no compromise when it came to the requirements of His chosen to obey His ordained and written down ethical and moral standards. Amos claims that God's sovereignty extends beyond governing people and nations. It even includes events. Things on earth happen or they don't happen because Jehovah wills it. Now, another thing to watch for is how Amos explains that just because God chooses a nation or an individual as set apart for Him, this doesn't automatically include divine protection or security. God's protection of His people was directly linked to their obedience to Him. And that obedience was directly linked to the terms contained in the Law of Moses, the Covenant. In reality, the one factor that separated Israel from even the Philistines was that the covenant, that covenant that was made between Israel and Jehovah on Mount Sinai, He made a covenant with Israel and no one else. And let me assure you, the so-called New Covenant that the Church believes broke the pattern of God, making a covenant only with Israel, and so it was made for Gentile Christians, the Church, is an erroneous belief that in no way comports with Scripture. When a pastor or a Bible teacher wants to point to the place in the Bible where we are told of this New Covenant, they invariably point to Jeremiah 31. Well, I want to take just a moment to see what it actually says. Jeremiah 31, verses 30 to 33. Here, the days are coming, says Adonai, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day I took them by their hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt, because for their part they violated my covenant, even though I, for my part, was a husband to them, says Adonai. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says Adonai. I will put my Torah within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will any of them teach his fellow community member or his brother, no Adonai. For all will know me, from the least of them to the greatest, because I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Who did God say He would make this new covenant with? Did He say, with the Gentile church? No. He said, with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Pretty definitive. Christ indeed made a way for Gentiles to be made part 
of the covenant people to be crafted into it, as Paul puts it. Certainly nowhere does the Bible say the covenant spoken of by Jeremiah was taken away from Israel and handed over to the Gentile church. Now, because Israel vowed to obey the terms of the covenant of Mount Sinai, but where they were unfaithful to those terms, the covenant was the cord now that bound them together with God, then God reserved the right to exterminate them entirely. This was the unheeded message of doom that Amos delivered to Ephraim Israel. Israel had been threatened with harsh punishments by earlier prophets, but Amos was the first to warn of their possible extinction. This threat included the idea that God would, at His own discretion, administer His attribute of justice upon His own people, even when His inclination and His more usual behavior was instead to override that with administering His attribute of mercy. So the concept is that Jehovah had finally reached a conclusion that no amount of intercession on behalf of His people would suffice because their sins were too blatantly rebellious. A line had been crossed. Not even a sudden radical change in the behavior of His people would hold off judgment. A line had been crossed. There was no retreating from it. Even so, Israel didn't believe the prophetic messages. They truly thought that because God had centuries earlier delivered them from Egypt, joined in covenant with them, that while some level of His discipline might occur for disobedience, a judgment as severe as what Amos prophesied? That was unthinkable. It was sort of Israel's theological equivalent of the once saved, always saved doctrine that has become prevalent in evangelical Christianity. Both beliefs center around a man-made principle that's anything but biblical. Both are dangerous because they bring on an unwarranted complacency. Deliverance from oppression and sin has always been conditional on our faithfulness to God and to His covenant. I'd like you to open your Bibles to Amos chapter 1. Amos chapter 1, we're going to read it all. I'll give you a moment to get there. Read along with me. Amos chapter 1. The words of Amos, one of the sheep owners in Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. He said, Adonai is roaring from Zion, thundering from Jerusalem. The shepherd's pastures will mourn, and Mount Carmel's summit will wither. Here is what Adonai says. For Damasex, that's Damascus's, three crimes, no four, I will not reverse it, because they threshed Gilead with an iron-spiked threshing sled. I will send fire to the house of Hazael, and it will consume the palaces of Ben-Hadad. I will break the bars of Damasek's gates. I will cut off the inhabitants from Bechat Aven, and him who holds the scepter from Beit Aden. Then the people of Aram will go into exile in Kerr, he says. Here is what Adonai says. For Gaza's three crimes, no four, I will not reverse it, because they exiled a whole population and handed them over to Edom. I will send fire to the wall of Gaza, and it will consume its palaces. I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod, and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron, and the rest of the Philistines will perish, says Adonai God. Here is what Adonai says. For Zor's three crimes, no four, I will not reverse it, 
because they exiled a whole population to Edom and did not remember the covenant with kinsmen. I will send fire, I will send fire to the wall of Zor, and it will consume its palaces. Here is what Adonai says. For Edom's three crimes, no four, I will not reverse it, because with sword he has pursued his kinsmen and threw aside all pity, constantly nursing his anger, forever fomenting his fury. I will send fire on Teman, it will consume the palaces of Botsra. Here is what Adonai says. For the people of Ammon's three crimes, no four, I will not reverse it, because they ripped apart pregnant women just to expand their territory. I will set fire to the wall of Rabah, and it will consume its palaces amid shouts on the day of battle, amid a storm on the day of the whirlwind. Their king will go into exile, he and his princes together, says Adonai. Well, verse 1 gives us more details about the author of this book, Amos, than do other books of prophecy give about their authors. He was part of the sheep breeding profession, not a shepherd. He lived in Tekoa, it's about a three or four hours walk from Jerusalem. And he gives us the era in which he received God's oracles and presented them to various folks in Ephraim, Israel. He even goes so far as to better pinpoint that time as two years before the earthquake that seems to have occurred during Uzziah, the king of Judah's reign. Now, this is probably the earthquake that's mentioned in Zechariah 14, 14.5. Reading starting at Zechariah 14.1, look. A day is coming for Adonai when you plund when your plundered Jerusalem will be divided right there within you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem for war. The city will be taken, the houses will be rifled, the women will be raped, and half the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then Adonai will go out and fight against those nations. Fighting is on a day of battle. On that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which lies to the east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in half from east to west to make a huge valley. Half of the mountain will move to the north, half of it towards the south. You will flee to the valley in the mountains, for the valley in the mountains will reach to Atzel. You will flee, just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then Adonai, my God, will come to you with all the holy ones. Okay. I should not bypass this passage without mentioning that Bible prophecies tend to happen and then happen again at a later time, sometimes more than once. God, through Zechariah, highlights this point by likening the earthquake and the reasons for it to the one that happened in the days of King Uzziah, king of Judah. Now clearly the earthquake was of such magnitude and consequence that it was remembered long afterward and need only be referred to as the earthquake for people to know which of the many earthquakes that shook Israel rather regularly that Amos was talking about. It also needs to be reiterated that although Amos was a resident of the kingdom of Judah, his prophetic message was aimed at and it was given to the people of the kingdom of Israel. Well, verse 2, verse 2 is essentially a preamble to all that will follow, and it is given in the form of poetry. It amounts to the announcement of God's judgment over the kingdom of Ephraim. Now, since everything about the Amos prophecy is directly related to violations of the covenant of Moses, then it would be most appropriate to speak of verse 2 employing the more ancient term of curse when speaking of the punishment Israel was soon going to receive. Now, I'm going to remind you that the covenant of Moses, also known as, known as the Law of Moses, 
consisted of blessings and curses. Blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. Well, hidden within the words of this verse is an important Israelite cultural understanding. The choice of the word roars is meant to conjure up the image of a lion. Hosea does the same thing in Hosea 5.14, For to Ephraim I will be like a lion, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I will tear them up and go away. I will carry them off. No one will rescue. So whereas in the book of Hosea, Hosea goes on to describe what a lion does to its prey as an illustration of what God can do to a nation, Amos simply uses the word roars to make the same point. Lions are vicious, powerful creatures that strike fear, and all who encounter them, only the foolish, ignore a roaring lion. Then, next saying that God thunders from Jerusalem makes two quick points. First, to thunder is a standard biblical metaphorical way of describing how God speaks. Thunder comes from above, so do God's words. It is sudden, it is startling, and it creates this overwhelming effect of a nearly paralyzing fear that happens with audible speech that comes from the God of Israel. Thinking back to Exodus, Exodus chapter 20, starting at verse 15. All the people experienced the thunder, the lightning, the sound of the shofar, the mountain smoking, and when the people saw it, they trembled. Standing at a distance, they said to Moses, You speak with us, we'll listen, but don't let God speak with us or we'll die. And further it is said that this word from God, as is given to Amos, it comes from the location of Jerusalem. This is because Jerusalem is God's earthly home. Actually, it's the temple located there. So from Amos's viewpoint, God's prophetic revelations coming from the Jerusalem temple mean that this is God's only earthly abode. And thus, even though Ephraim Israel has established numerous places of worship that claim to be holy sites for Jehovah, they are all, by definition, illegitimate. This oracle is meant for Israel, even though a Judean prophet is bringing it to them, and this point is made again in Amos 9.3. In Amos 9.3 it says, If they hide themselves on the top of the Carmel, I will search them out and capture them there. If they hide from me at the bottom of the sea, I'll order the serpent to bite them there. Mount Carmel lies within the kingdom of Ephraim Israel. So the idea is that the Lord's roaring and thundering has a reach all the way from Jerusalem and Judah to the, in the south up to the north in Carmel. Now the mention of shepherds' pastures mourning, this is a poetic way of saying the needed grass for the sheep will wither away from drought, all the way up into the lush and forested mountain slopes of Carmel. Now this literary structure is called merism. That is, it behaves like bookends. So the idea is the grasslands, the mountain heights, and then everything in between. All-inclusive. All of the territory of Ephraim will be equally affected, so there will be no place to take the livestock to feed them, and livestock that is so central to their economy and food supply. This is but another side to the promised judgment that's coming. Well, verse 3. Verse 3 shifts gears, and it marks the beginning of eight individual articles of judgment against various nations that surround and include Israel. In other words, these are oracles that specifically include certain foreign nations. In one form or another, virtually 
all prophetic books include judgments against foreign nations, even if it is only a very general reference, such as referring to the nations. Now this is as opposed to what we find in Amos, whereby certain nations are called out by name. The key word in each of these eight oracles is, in Hebrew, Pesha, Pesha, which is invariably translated into English as transgressions. What is key to understand is what that term meant within the context of that era. Well, first, just as love and hate are usually political terms in the Bible that have to do with allegiance or the lack thereof to a king or a lord, so is the term pesha, transgressions, couched in the language of the political sphere. It means to revolt. It means to throw off the authority of a government. It means to intentionally and treacherously break allegiance with someone. So in this section of Amos, who is being transgressed against? Now some Bible scholars think it is referring to mistreatment of Israel by these foreign nations. That is, it's about treaties and agreements that these nations had with Israel, but then broke them and instead harmed or attacked Israel in some way. However, there is no record of some of these nations having such treaties or about attacking Israel. The only other option is that these are transgressions against the God of Israel. This then is what I was referring to in our introduction, whereby Amos put forth the notion that Jehovah is sovereign not only over Israel, but over all the other nations as well, even if they don't recognize it. Therefore, this universal God over all nations will not tolerate severe unrighteousness, no matter who the transgressor might be. And what is it that they are transgressing? What is the measure of their transgressions? They are transgressing God's morality code. Okay, we will continue with Amos chapter 1 next time.